2: Hi everybody, and thank you for Ken Quiet Hawk's amazing intro. Please check him out on the internet. He and his wife are Native storytellers, and they have preserved history and mythology and cosmology of the Native Americans through their storytelling. And it's a fabulous way of preserving um, insights and wisdoms far beyond the printed word. And it's what we had before we did have the written word. So check them out. It's Ken Quiet Hawk, and it's Native storytellers. Uh, now today i am so excited i have mark stavish back on the show again with me and he is uh a font of amazing wisdom knowledge and insight that that i am delighted to uh to have on the show because i i can always dip in and get such great understanding of, of different aspects of life um you'll remember that we had uh, a wonderful time with his book on egregores, and Today we are going to go into um, his book. on It's called The Path of Freemasonry: The Craft as a Spiritual Practice, and it's an amazing book. Anybody who has ever been curious about Freemasonry, this is the one to read. He details the spiritual lessons and rituals of Freemasonry as a step by step path of spiritual development and self improvement for both masons and non masons, men and get this, women alike. He explores the history and meaning of Freemasonry and its symbols from its origins in the Temple of Solomon to the medieval craft guilds of the Renaissance and explains how the craft promotes personal growth through the symbolic building of self and an inner temple of wisdom in much the same way that Masonry's rituals symbolize the building of Solomon's temple in accordance with the mystical art arch- architectural and instructions of Hiram. That would be Hiram Abiff. Drawing on the esoteric doctrines, including the Kabbalah, alchemy, sacred geometry, John D.'s angelic ma- magic, and the secrets of the Gothic cathedral builders, each chapter addresses an area of the Masonic experience, paralyzing, paralyzing, paralleling them with experiences each of us finds in our own lives. He provides simple practices to help internalize and personalize the lessons presented, including dream work, journaling, meditation, prayer, and understanding the sacred architecture. He also examines the crafting and use of the spiritual and symbolic symbols of Freemasonry, such as the trestle or tracing board and the chamber of reflection, one of my favorites. Providing the tools to make the craft and initiate experience of self-improvement, he shows that ultimately the Masonic experience is the human quest for self-realization and self-expression so that we each may find our place in the temple of wisdom. He is a respected authority on Western spiritual traditions, the founder and director of the Institute for Hermetic Studies and the Louis-Claude de St. Martin Fund, he has appeared on radio shows, television and in major print media including Coast to Coast AM, the History Channel, BBC and the New York Times. And he's also the author of the blog Vox Hermes and also, you know, a minor thing, in his spare time he has written 36 books in nine different languages. He only he wrote them in English I assume and they've been translated but I, I, there are Twenty-six books out there, at least, and probably more. Welcome to the show, Mark.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's great to be here.
2: Well, you, you, you always have, have been um, an amazing... I tell people that, that the radio show is really my Ph.D. program and that I have the, um, the luxury of being able to decide what I want to learn about and then find one of the best people in the field... To teach me, and then get two hours of tutoring free of charge from from the masters. So, you know, nobody else has a school like this, and I'm I'm loving <laughs> every minute of it. And certainly, you have been, um, you know, really important in in I mean, my study. You know, my study uh, learning about egregores and and your book on egregores is, has you know been something that I have been delighted with and gone back and read several times. And so this book, because I am fascinated by Freemasonry for lots and lots of different reasons, but one of them was my grandfather was a Freemason, and I never knew that much about it. And the book that you've written, for anybody who is at the least bit interested in Freemasonry, this is the book to read. You go into not only its foundation and what... What led up to the, the the craft as it is today, but you go into the different meaning of the different levels and, the, and some of the symbols, and of course you didn't you don't give away the big deep dark secrets, but I can't imagine what's left to be a be, well that's that's why it's a secret I guess. Um, but but you give you give so much information to uh, for people to understand what it takes to be a mason and the purpose of it and you know, I have to admit I've 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 always looked upon Masonry as as the male version of the new age, to be honest with you, of of seeking spiritual insights into ourselves and how do we become a better person for ourselves and our family and our and our community. So that it's 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 an amazing book and it does enlightened to su- such a degree that, and what I love is you give step-by-steps and then you give exercises on how you can expand upon, you know, the different um, areas you're working on, and then you give suggested books to read as well. So, I mean, it's a handbook for for practitioner and non-practitioner alike.
3: Well, that was the, the idea, is that the, the book was and is not simply limited to someone who's a Freemason or interested in esotericism, because we have to look at Masonry contextually, and it grew up at a time when Masonic lodges served as not only a meeting ground for men of different occupations and and social levels and even religious beliefs within the framework of, of Europe at that time, for the most part, but also it served as a kind of continuing education system where the men of the the Lodge would very well give presentations to other members of the Lodge on what they were working on. So you might have an example of uh, a dissection or optics or, or some kind of mechanics uh, that was going on. So the idea of self-education and self-improvement within the framework of What Masonry advocates is the seven liberal arts and sciences, and for your listeners who aren't familiar with that, that's the three areas and four areas that any educated person should be familiar with, and that would include uh, rhetoric, okay, grammar, logic, and we see these terms as being, oh, gee, logic, what do I study that for? Well, it's very simple. If you're listening to anything in the media or you're watching or reading anything on, on social media, you, you have to learn to recognize what no one knows, logical fallacies. Where is there an error in the logic? Where does it break down so that you can eh, I don't think this is quite true, you know? So uh, an example would be, you know, would be how generalization is often used or overpersonalization. Or appeals to authority. Now these are logical fallacies and if we recognize them, if we know them, we could say, I I'm not gonna fall for that trap. Okay. And it mm-hmm. can also be in just when you're someone's trying to sell you something you don't need, don't want and can't afford. Now, <laughs> now with the others with the rhetoric it's how to present an argument, how to think logically, how to think persuasively, how to think consistently and coherently. And then of course there's uh, geometry, which is uh, the queen of the sciences with mathematics. Everything we have today exists in some way because of geometry. And it's important to understand that. And then we also have uh, they would have called it at different times astrology or astronomy. And you know, We're not just alone in this cosmos, so to speak. We're not just the only thing which exists. Where are we in relationship spatially to everything else that's out there? At least on a physical level. So These areas of the seven liberal arts and sciences are extremely important for any educated person to uh, have a knowledge of because it will allow them to be uh, more persuasive, more consistent, more clear, and to be therefore functionally more successful in their life and therefore of better value to themselves, their families, their communities, and their Masonic watch. I, I'd like to take one, one point. You know, in truth, I, I do give away all the secrets in the book, you know, just because it's not said, not just because there's a big, uh, what is it, uh, neon light over it with an arrow pointing, here's the secret, here's the secret. I mean, everything is there, but you have to be able to recognize it. And uh, there are some, even brethren who will it's been so long since maybe they've been in Lodge that they may not recognize it. But really everything is there to help an individual on their path of personal uh, self-awareness, self-expansion. Again, through uh, not simply abstract ideas, but how do these ideas become concrete in our lives? How do we build with them? And that's where, again, those seven liberal arts and science come in. that's where self-development comes in, uh, actualization of your put, Capacity of your potential uh, in different ways so um, that's really an important point this book is for anyone and everyone
2: well I, I think that what what fascinated me the most about it was that that it's it's a practice that that anybody uh, well I, I speak from you know a metaphysical standpoint here that that being on a spiritual journey looking to um, to, to enhance myself spiritually and and you know then how do I be of service you know through my expansion to other people i mean it it for me this is a, a, a spiritual journey for for the for the men and and I love the fact that that uh, in, when when these when when the lodges were put together um, in order for there to be no misunderstandings or anything in it that, that the two policies that were there were you didn't talk about religion and you didn't talk about politics, which meant, you know, you, you had to talk about other things. And I, I think that, that as a, as a rule is, is a phenomenal way of, of clearing the table so that you can put anything on it and, and talk about it without having those two aspects influence what you're talking about. And I, I loved that. And, and that to me was, Great wisdom, and so so when when the lodges first came together, when they you know back in the seventeen hundreds, sixteen hundreds, you know when when they were put together, was the purpose basically to serve to to share intellectual um, and expand intellectual understanding of time space and, and the journey that we're all on.
3: No, of course not. And that's, it's foolish to think it was. Most of these lodges, what we were talking about is speculative masonry. And speculative uh-huh. masonry was, was built upon the operative lodges. And the operative lodges were just that. Those were union guilds of, uh, of men who were involved in the uh, Masonic building trades and working with stone. And for a variety of reasons, these guild, uh, guilds opened themselves up to non-members, for different reasons, were not always clear on what they were. However, with that came an interest in the Masonic secret, which is probably knowledge of, a fairly advanced knowledge of mathematics, probably geometry was the big thing. And um, with that being said, uh, the symbolic aspect or speculative aspect began to take over. So that in that case, you see this transformation of the, uh, many of the operative guilds. And, of course, they didn't go away because masonry as a profession still continues to this day. Uh, but we see a transformation of some of these entities into the more speculative Masonic lodges that we think of as today. And with that said, um, there came the ability for travel, signs of recognition. I mean, these men traveled across Europe for, for work. So they are means of getting information of what was going on in other places. It's very difficult for us to really understand the world of the even early 20th century for many people, uh, let alone the early uh, 17th century or 18th century. And in that case, simply just try and put yourself in the framework of, you know, post 9/11, which many people don't even remember. Okay. <laughs> I mean, when all the flights were gone and there was no air traffic. Or in my instance here, uh, about 10 years ago when we had uh, flood alerts, because areas around us were flooding, there was no traffic. So there's silence because there's no traffic. Our roads are closed. Many people aren't familiar with that state. They're so inundated with uh, sensory stimuli. And with that comes the misunderstanding that the people of the previous eras were just like us. You know, so any errors or perceived mistakes on our part that they may have made were, of course, intentional. No, weren't. they weren't. Um, we work with what we have. So the, the admonition not to discuss religion and politics had a particular meaning at that time that exceeds what it does today in many levels. Because to discuss politics would be to discuss the crown, and this would be treason.
0: Ah. Okay. Uh, in
3: this case, well, again, it's contextual, right? So to right. discuss religion might might be to discuss the pope, and of course, this could be viewed as heresy or treason. So. Is
2: that? Is that still carried over to this day, though, that you don't talk about politics and religion and you're in the lodges?
3: Well, it's, it's encouraged not to. I mean, it's, just, it's discouraged you know, to discuss them, and it's, uh, it is one of the rules. Now, that's very difficult to keep if you're discussing philosophy, but at least philosophy you can keep it in the, the realm of the abstract. And what we can call uh-huh. politics is politics is philosophy in action. So we're not talking about action. We're not talking about taking a philosophical uh, notion, putting it onto a platform and saying all members must adhere to it. You know, that's not what it does. That's, that's what political parties do. That's what religions do. Masonry does not do that. Which leads us to the other point about is, is masonry kind of new age for men. Uh, I both like that phrase and, and have to say it. Uh, I dislike it simultaneously. Uh, I like it because, in truth, if you look at the early 20th century, there was a magazine, I believe it was Masonic, known as The New Age. And um, it was a Masonic uh, publication. So we see a lot of the early members of what would become the New Age movement, which even the New Age movement fails to recognize their parents and grandparents anymore. Uh, Things we talked about before the show, such as uh, the early Theosophical movement, uh, various aspects of the early Rosicrucian movements in the 18th and 20th, 19th and 20th century, uh, many of these were deeply Masonic influenced. They weren't Masonic entities, but many of the men involved were Masons, and we see growing out of it co-Masonry uh, or a female Masonry, a Masonry that allows both women to join and, of course, droid humane, which was a, uh, if I remember correctly, that's the women's only, although I may have that uh, be an error there. So you have uh, uh, a female Masonic movement, uh, and then you have uh, masonry. No, it's called masonry, yeah, women women's movement. And then you have some lodges which uh, allow both men and women to join. And uh, the reasons for that have to do with the, the nature and the makeup of the ritual primarily for what most people think otherwise. Well, that's
2: that's the, the one thing um when Freemasonry started to, to come together as, as Freemasonry in the 17th century, um, that's, I, I love the fact that, that uh, and we spoke about this earlier, that, that women were not allowed except that there were exceptions when women snuck in and saw the rituals and the only way to keep them quiet was to um, initiate them into the full masonry so that they didn't talk about what they saw. Um, I, I realize there weren't a lot of women that got in that way, but I think it's pretty, pretty damn clever. Um, but the purpose of not having women in the lodge uh, was to take away the distraction. What was the point? I mean, because women have brains too. No,
3: it's because because in the ritual, there's uh, the bearing of the breast. Ah, it's that simple.
2: Yeah, I can see it. Oh, well, that could be contentious. Yeah.
3: Okay, yeah, it's that, that would
2: make sense. Okay, I that I yeah. th- that I understand.
3: So and, so, and you have you have you have women who would overhear, eavesdrop on the rituals, and of course, once made, cannot be unmade, which was is kind of the saying, which is why we say, guard ye well the western gate, be careful uh-huh. who you let in, and that applies to any organization. Um, And, of course, one would ask, how did this happen? How were they allowed to overhear the ritual? And, you know, it's very simple. Uh, Sometimes these lodges were held in public places, uh, such as in Boston, you know, during the period of the Boston Tea Party. They were in the second floor of a tavern. The meeting room above the tavern is where they were held. Or they were held in private dwellings. Now, if you go to... um, Massachusetts uh there is a wonderful um village up there and it's a recreation all the buildings are authentic and uh-huh. it is a recreation of uh various uh I believe 17th and 18th century villages uh to have buildings okay in, in one one organic what would say ideal village and it's a great tourist spot and uh if you go into the main house, which would be the governor's house, and you go to the second floor, there's the ballroom.
0: Mm-hmm. And the
3: ballroom, and I have pictures of it, I've posted somewhere, is beautiful because it's completely decked out in Masonic symbolism. So I've you have been there. On I, is,
2: is that Greenfield Village that we're talking about?
3: No, no it's not Greenfield, um, but uh. we'll, we'll find it in give the name to the listeners, but it, it's just a beautiful place. So, of course, this is a, a private house. It would be very easy for the, the lady of the house to eavesdrop if she wanted to.
2: No, I've, so, I've been there. I, I've, I've visited this house, so I know exactly what you're talking about.
3: Yeah, and that um, would have been very common.
2: Okay. I think I think that it's, it's um, for me, Freemasonry has always been, you know, a, a mystery. Um, you know, and and certainly my grandfather being a part of it. You know, we we heard rumors about um, when he passed away how there was a ceremony done over his coffin. There there is a lot of ritualistic ceremony connected to it, which I find fascinating. And
3: oh, well, and that's I, a public I, ritual, by the way. The Masonic funeral oh, service yeah. is a public ritual.
2: Oh yeah, no, everybody saw it, um, but mm-hmm. but it was it it there, there's a sense of camaraderie that I think is phenomenal among Masons, and and I think this is this is it's sort of like a fraternity, but but not really. But, well, but it is. It, a is. Fraternity.
3: it is a and, fraternity. And, we call it the Brotherhood, okay. and I think this is I, an important I, point that. Masonry has three components to it. It is a fraternity, so it has the fraternal aspect, which is what most people see. And for the most part, most brethren adhere to pretty much their beginning and end of their Masonic journey, which is perfectly fine. Then there is the uh, aspect of charity. There is a charitable aspect. Masonic charities, if I remember correctly, give between $1 to $2 million a day. It depends on the year and the state of the economy. But there's a tremendous Masonic charitable aspect out there. The children's hospitals that they run, they run free of charge. And, in fact, I I need to bring this up. The the Shrine Hospitals, the children's hospitals, were sued several years back for not charging. Insurance companies insisted that they charge. And this was a, a, a contentious issue. They said, that's not what we do. We don't charge people for the surgeries for the work. They even pick people up and drop them off and take care of housing. So Masonic charitable contributions are massive and and extensive, but you don't hear about them because they do things quietly. That is the nature of someone on the journey. They do it quietly. So you have Masonic, and, of course, let me just say, the response was that if anyone does need um, work for their child that is 17 or under, under the age of 18, that is, um, they will get a bill, but they will not be collected. Ah! And that's because that's because the insurance companies forced the issuance of an effort to collect. And I just, I, that, I cannot state often enough what a a terrible and a wretched thing that was. The greed and avarice on the part of the uh, what passes for medical care needs to be understood in light of Masonic charities. So that being said, you have then the philosophical aspect, which is what many people think of when they think of Freemasonry, but in fact is, is probably the least uh, active aspect of contemporary Masonry, Anglo-Saxon Masonry. There has been a strong revival in the philosophical aspect in the last 20 years, and particularly among young men joining. The Vinci Code did a tremendous amount for us uh, in terms of promotion, promotion. Uh, <laughs> Of course, they dropped the ball for the longest time and weren't able to act on it because the older members were too uh, stuck in their ways. But we do see a tremendous amount of interest now. And we see traditional observance lodges. And these are lodges that exist uh, and are acted upon in a manner that is similar to what you would have seen, you know, 100, 150 years ago, 20 years ago, where men present papers or lectures to the lodge. Uh, and then you also have what are called philosophical lodges, which where that is not required but do focus on philosophical content. And you do have some, masonry has many, many, as I said to you before, it's a huge tent, it's a huge tent that's over 300 years old. So it has many aspects of functioning, many areas for people to participate in. And because one participates in one area it does not necessarily mean they participate in another. Um, so you have one group of men who, uh, it's known as College of Rights, and they meet twice a year in whatever their locale is, because of course these they have colleges all over, and uh they'll recreate these ancient rites from the you know eighteenth eighteenth century, and they'll open the lodge and they'll close it in the night, and that's it, so you get to see a peek into the past through them, and then you have uh a tremendous amount of men who do research, Scottish Rite Northern Jurisdiction and Scottish New Southern Jurisdiction by Arthur DeHoyes, who wrote the introduction of my book. They have spectacular scholars. And in Pennsylvania, we have the Masonic Academy of Knowledge and its scholar program for all members, which is just wonderful. And it's for members who are outside of the jurisdiction, too. So, you know, men from New Jersey and New York, Connecticut often come to the meetings. So we get to meet many, many men and uh, they're free of charge. So any young man out there who, particularly in Pennsylvania, who would like to participate in these things, there's tremendous opportunity for meeting other people who are trying to improve their lives in different ways. Now, you know, does that make them all, uh, you know, Yodas? Not, not by any stretch, <laughs> um, but it's, it's a good organization that is often misunderstood, much by its own fault, by the way, uh, and is a big tent. So. Anyone who wants to can find something to do there. And as far as women, I just say, look, just join co-masonry or or Droid Humane or or one of these other or, shh, I didn't say it, Memphis, Misery m, shh, you know, one of these things. Just go join it. Uh, There is a a branch of masonry that was designed for. uh, It's a a co-body, meaning it's a, a dependent body. Uh, designed for women in 1776 it was. It was Eastern Star. Uh, so that was mostly for wives and daughters to give them something to do to keep them occupied. Uh, but, you know, if you're in... Well, and, if, and I got to tell you, if you're in the right body, I've been to some of the functions locally. I, I even joined because a friend of mine kept twisting my arm to do it, and I said, sure, I'll join just to, to do it for you. Uh, they had great social activities. No, really did. I mean, fantastic social activity. So, uh, masonry is community-based, so it's going to represent the men in your community. You may have to travel. You may have to go to Zoom sessions. But one of the advantages of masonry is, is that even though uh, we may not agree with one another, that is the members, and And everyone may not like one another at times because you never know why people join. Sometimes they they they're a bit dishonest. Like locally, they just want to get to the golf course rather than to to be part of the lodge. What you find is that generally speaking. And this is probably one of the things people are afraid of or don't understand about it. It's easier for me to talk to someone who is a Freemason than someone who isn't. We immediately have certain things that we understand, and those things have to do with certain core values and character and In well, that, that regard, think... we are talking in that regard, we're kind well, of talking I... about hinting at what you said is a spiritual path. There's certain things yeah. that I can expect from this person, and they can expect from me.
2: Mhm well, I think one of the the fascinating things is when they were talking about. Back in the seventeenth eighteenth century, where you could have a nobleman and and his manservant, both being masons and having the nobleman uh having the manservant be be the uh leader of the of of the temple or you know at that particular Master point of in time right and and that there was there was you know while while they were in that that position and that meeting. It was the manservant that had the authority over the the lord, and then you know you go you go back home, and the roles were reversed. But um, it it made great sense. It uh, it's it's a it's something in which you can grow and advance in intellectually and spiritually, which is really a very profound establishment today, especially today, because. Um, there's so much going on in the world, you know, having a place where you can just talk philosophy or you can just talk about you know um, those those aspects of personal development that that you can't talk about in the grocery store or, or in the gas station or wherever um it It's a wonderful place and and I think the the one thing the one part of of um the initiatory process and everything was the um Oh, the room of illumination, or yeah, the chamber of reflection. Um, I found that to be an amazing thing. That, that during the initiative process, they were put in a room, and and the point was to be able to reflect upon their life and and what they wanted to do with their life and how they wanted to grow and how they um, how they were how how they reflected upon their, their society and their family and everything else. I. Everybody, every home should have a chamber of reflection. As far as I'm concerned,
3: well, the chamber of reflection served uh, a more fundamental purpose. I mean, that's that's the expansion of the purpose. Is you had to stop and reflect. But when the the chamber was used in the Masonic context, it was the first thing the candidate encountered. And I'm not giving away any secrets here because some some rites have chambers, some don't. Some want them to reinstall. Other other jurisdictions, you know, they're, they're hemming and hawing on it. You can easily go online and find beautiful images on Google of some of these French lodges with their chambers, which are spectacular, and other, filled with alchemical symbolism uh, and, and, and Kabbalah. You can also then see right next to it a very simple chamber. I mean, uh, crude and simple, bare bones. And what the function there was, and I'll give the example, so we're using the the simple version, here would be a mirror, a candle, an hourglass, a skull, and some writing paper. Now, of course, the candle is to provide light, but that also represents the inner light, illumination. The mirror is, of course, reflection, reflecting upon oneself. The skull and the hourglass are the passage of time and the inevitability of death. And then the question the candidate was asked is, why do you want to join this lodge? Now, I I turn that around a little bit, and I say, why are you here? When I give the presentation in lodges, I always ask, why are you here? Because from that we get to extrapolate, why are you here? Why are you in this lodge tonight? Why are you on this planet? You know, all these things. What are you doing with your life? But that has to be understood contextually at the time, when the candidate wrote their Masonic will, meaning their desire, this was read before the body of the Lodge, voted on, and then burned. The question was, why do you want to join this body where in many countries around where you would be, and that is in Europe, this is a death sentence?
0: Uh-huh.
3: So why is it that you want to join this organization? You know, what is because you need to understand what you're getting into here. And I don't think many of the listeners understand the intensity of the anti-Masonic experience. Uh, Not only in this country, in the middle of the 19th century, but also in Europe during the... uh, 19th century, well, 18th and 19th century, Cagliostro was the last person to die in the prisons of the Inquisition, we're told. Uh, but also, you see it during the uh, interwar years, with the okay. National Socialist period and the Communists, the Bolsheviks, and even, you know, with the Islamic fundamentalism. Now, these are strongly anti-masonic. Well, and there's other places as well. I mean, one of the first things that one of the first things uh, totalitarian governments do is they shut down Masonic lodges.
2: Well, and I that's can understand the first thing why. For
3: sure.
2: I mean, there, there's your intelligentsia. You know, for <laughs> sake, don't let them loose. You know, <laughs> but originally, when when let's let's go back to. The, the, you have that you you call it the Blue Lodge. They're the first three degrees, and and um, why is it called the Blue Lodge?
3: Who knows? Oh, okay. this is one of these. This this is one of those things. There's some when something is this old, you know. Things start, they go along. Everyone knew why for the first ten years. Maybe 20, and they forget. Then different ideas oh. pop up. I, okay, I, my, so theory a... is, my theory is that the reason it's blue is because blue is the color of spaciousness and open skies and philosophical broadness. We also see okay. the color blue or aspects of blue represented philosophically um, in the period is having a particular representation to divinity, which, of course, the sky does as well. So that's my premise, is that it has to do with that openness and broadness. Particularly, remember, originally we're looking at a Mediterranean climate or environment for this arising out of. And, of course, we know blue skies. Even on a November day, we can remember what they look like. Uh,
0: Yes. (laughs) But...
3: uh, you know so again well, some of the symbols and ideas are contextual
2: okay so so originally there were three different levels and and then then when did they start to expand and grow into um the york and the scottish rites what what well, happened
3: you, fundamentally then, you had two degrees, and then at some point very quickly on, a third was added. And um, those were, you know, the intermediate degree was added. So you uh-huh. have uh, uh, entered apprentice, a fellow craft, and uh, master mason. These okay. degrees tell a story around the building of the Temple of Solomon.
0: Uh-huh.
3: And that story is loosely based on what is in the Bible, as well as folklore. There are clear aspects of the ritual that have nothing at all to do with what is said in the uh, Jewish scripture. And from that... It's nothing outrageous. It's just you know, if you if you read you know scripture, it's not there. You know, Vulcan uh-huh. is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Okay, so you know, yeah, <laughs> uh, that kind of, you know, as I and I think I point a joke about that in the book. Um, so masonry develops its own mythologies, its own stories, its own narratives to explain what's happening.
2: Okay,
3: I often I often say that. You know, one of the rites which uses the Tower of Babel would, is probably a more uh, accurate uh, model than, than the Temple of Solomon. But that's just, you know, my my reasoning. Um, so you have, after these degrees are established, and of course every master mason is equal. And that is really the highest degree, by the way. Even though you may join rights that go up to the 32nd degree or get your 33rd, and I know quite a few people this year who were, uh, it's really nice to see close friends get their 33rd degree from Scottish Rite in this and northern jurisdiction. Uh, as the, the, the current Grand Master jokes, we're giving you the degree while you can still use it, while you can be an example to men, not just so that we can put the, uh, the jewel and, uh, and, and cap on your coffin. Okay. And and that's okay. important. Yeah, that's important. You know, leadership having forward leadership like that is very important. I have to say, I'm very impressed with that grandmaster for Northern jurisdiction. He's really doing a great deal to, to uh, spruce us up. You know, we're we're the smallest. We're the, we're the runt of the litter. We're the smallest of the of the two in North America, and uh, he's doing a tremendous amount to uh, make it dynamic and appealing to uh, men in their 30s and 40s in their 20s even, but also the education. Again, can't get away from that. The education they're doing a tremendous amount with. And uh, so uh, just mention that to my friends who've gotten their degree. It's spectacular. But they are Master Masons first and foremost. Uh-huh. And every Master Mason is the same. So I may not have anything to do with that body because I'm not in that body, you know, whatever the degree they might be in. But uh, we all come from the same place, and that's called Blue Lodge, your mother lodge. We we all come from there. And uh, at some point, you know, the fourth degree uh, became, at least in one English or British masonry, became their capstone degree, and it's a beautiful ritual. It really is. I enjoy it a great deal. However, of course, like anything, you know, we want more, more rituals, more clubs, more secrets. And... What's quite spectacular is, you know, you had the Grand Lodges in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts being established in the 1730s. You know, so it was not that long after, you know, the the Grand Lodges, uh, the United Grand Lodge of England was established in 1717. So you had these lodges being established. You had colonial lodges set up and all sorts of wonderful things going on. And in Europe at that time. Masonic seekers were deeply associated with esotericism, alchemy, Kabbalah, ritual magic. I think the Elo of Martinez Pascuales is probably the epitome of that. Uh And what you then see is the age of the adventurer, where you could go over the hill and instantly assume a new identity. There was no real ID, no passport. There was nothing to check. You could become whoever you wanted to be, and you didn't even need a Facebook profile to do it. (laughs) Yes. So you had people doing, creating these rights and degrees, just whole cloth, because there was a market for it. People would join to get whatever secrets (gasps) you thought you had. And those secrets could be real, meaning there might be something there, or it could just be a con game. You know, so many of the when you see the explosion of rites at that period, it's a question of well, are these authentic, meaning with, you know, the purpose of a Masonic initiation, or are they just you know some kind of con game like we see continuing today with many religious movements and cults yeah. and other organizations that come. So it's, it's a spectacular period and wonderfully confusing. And just particularly someone on the outside who doesn't spend the time learning the basic history and the history of the period, too. It's very easy to confuse one group with another. And many of these rites were Masonic, and then they just went away. Just like the high point of fraternalism in the United States was prior to the Second World War. And many of those fraternal organizations that existed in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, they no longer exist, or they might exist in one or two places. And I mean literally one or two places, or many of them just became insurance companies, because fraternal support was what that was about. How do you fraternally support someone in the early 20th century? And that meant, what is financial support? What is death benefit? How do you help the widows and orphans? And that's where a lot of the charitable activity so, comes from.
2: So, so basically, a lot of the, the 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 fringe stuff has has some of it been absorbed into the the, the totality of Freemasonry. Um oh. And and you know, very much so. I, I would. It 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 looked to me as I I. You know, in in reading through the book, I had no idea all of these other fringe organizations, ha- you know, were out there. I mean, even you know, you went into Alistair Crowley and and you know John Dee and all of these guys. I mean, aspects of all of it, you know, have have been what what was of value um have been absorbed into Freemasonry which makes it stronger and and I would think a more vital and and a more interesting organization to be a part of because especially with these other the the other levels that you go to after the blue lodge I mean there is a certain amount of it isn't just you pay your money and you get the the degree you know there is work there is research there is material that you have to absorb to a certain degree in, that enhances you um and it's in some not lodges, that that material in
3: some, no. Yeah. I, I think it's an important point. Oh, in I- some lodges, yes. In some orders yes, in degrees yes. In others no. And and what we've done is we've increasingly made that optional for members. And whether that's a strength or a weakness, each lodge needs to decide on their own. But there is a tremendous amount of educational and informative material that exists. For members who want to avail themselves of. And I want to make that very clear so that members listening may say, well, you know, my lodge is pretty boring. You know, that's why I stopped going. I said, well then, you know, send me an email and we'll get you set up. You'll have more and, and, and set up with communications with other men in your jurisdiction or nearby. Um, as far as D, D was never a Freemason. Uh, it wouldn't have been at that time, but he existed in the framework of which we see masonry growing out of that mm-hmm. viewpoint. Uh, of the importance of personal education. And, of course, his library became the basis of one of the first libraries in, in, uh, in England. Now, the, uh, the part of Crowley, Crowley was a, was a member of a Masonic body. It's a question as to whether it was regular or not. Uh, that's for historians to figure out. I don't really care. And I would not say that his ideas were absorbed into Masonry. I would not say that. I would say that what he did is he took the Masonic framework as did many others, so he's no exception there, and utilized it as part of the orders and organizations which he is principally associated with. Oh. And that would have been the OTO and the AA. But you see within those groups, particularly stemming out of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, um, in the late 19th century, 1888 and onward, for uh, you see its founding members were, were Freemasons. Well, well, it seems
2: to me memories. that in, in the se- late seventeen hundreds, early eighteen hundreds, that that seems to have been almost golden age here for for Freemasonry because I mean, look, look at you know signers of the Declaration of Independence. You know, great many of them were Freemasons. Um, so, yes, no
3: yes uh in terms of golden age it's it's you know I think there's several golden ages of the Masonic experience i think the mid mid eighteenth century would be, because you had all these rites that were coming into full bloom, um, uh-huh. particularly in europe I'm referring to, where you have these different esoteric rites, not so much in the u s uh, or or the colonial the colonies uh, not so much there then you have um the period of the occult revival in Europe, the French occult revival, which we also then had the the, the British occult revival, which gives us the Golden Dawn. The French occult revival gave us uh, Martinism, the Martinist order, uh, various you know, Martinist orders that would then stem off that, and French Rosicrucianism, French Rosicrucian groups, and then groups that would stem off that or claim authority, like amorc Claims its authority That is the ancient mystical order Or the Crucius in California Uh, San Jose claims its uh, Legitimacy from uh, The French occult period I think one or two others do as well But they're they're the big one Um, And and they have a certain framework That's visibly I don't want to say Masonic But there's a lot of overall You you see a lot of the the structural symbolism Of it there uh, in, In many of these groups and that's because of where they came out of.
2: Well, I think um, two thi- One thing: uh, in order to join, you have to acknowledge the fact that you know you you believe in a supreme architect, so to speak, a, a, a god. There has to be a a belief in in um, a spiritual source. I mean, is it? I mean, God? Is it? There has to there has to be some sort of uh, acknowledgement for um, a higher power.
3: You have to believe in a supreme being, and okay. within masonry, that's often referred to as the Grand Architect of the Universe.
0: Uh-huh.
3: How the supreme being is defined is very questionable because it's open to personal interpretation, and this needs to be stressed. Uh, There is at least one Masonic body, the Grand Orient of France, which is fundamentally atheistic. However, uh, and it is not always recognized, there's there's this whole thing of what constitutes a regular Masonic body and recognition. And and we can go into that if you care to, but uh, you must believe in a Supreme Being. How you understand that is really up to you. So, you know, when you look historically, that often had a Judeo-Christian aspect to it. But then it has a certain deist aspect to it. Many of the founding fathers were deists. They weren't, yeah. you know, strict Abrahamics. And then, of course, you look at someone like Swami Vivekananda, who was a, a Freemason, and I think Scottish Rite, 32nd degree. I'm not certain, but I have to check on that. You know, clearly he's not. You know, he's, uh, his view of, of, of deity is within the concept of uh, uh, mostly the Vedic tradition. Uh And he's one of the... So um, how you understand that is going to be very different from person to person. There's no Masonic book of teachings. There's nothing that tells you this is what Masons believe. There's commentary on Masonic ritual commentary on Masonic symbolism, and I made that very clear in my book. I've given a very solid historical justification for everything I've said here, and yet you can be a Freemason and disregard all of it. That's your choice
2: okay
3: there's no doc- there's no doctrine of belief
2: well um and, and there, this is where is... people
3: don't don't understand.
2: But at some point, a person who is aspiring to be a Mason is voted upon by the Lodge. Is that appropriate?
3: Well, that is correct. They are voted upon. They're balloted upon. And that's where the term blackball comes from.
2: Right. And does just one blackball really, you know, negate a person's potential?
3: Used to, and changes from jurisdiction now. I think now it requires three, but that that's a jurisdictional issue. Traditionally, it was one one black ball and you're out.
2: Wow. It just because to everyone. Me, well, to me, what 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 this represents is 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 really. See, see, I I look upon it very differently than than maybe a lot. um this is a spiritual journey for, for the individual. This is, this is a way of enhancing their ability to, to, to be effective as a person, uh, as a family member, as a part of society. And, and I love the fact that there is um, not a great deal of um, – I love the fact that no one is asked to be a member. They have to request to be a member.
3: Sure, because means, you know I mean I know me? people can hint people can hint around it and they can suggest now they can suggest that maybe you consider it, but uh yeah you know there, there's no there's no benefit from membership it's not like a gym you know it, it's it's <laughs> not like a yoga class, okay, things are expected of you and and as a result of that uh. know asking someone to join without them knowing what they're joining uh Uh is uh and which may be detrimental to their their family situation is um you know because where i'm in northeastern pennsylvania it always cycles around it's it's closing down but i remember for a long time it always cycled through you know the the bishop being asked the catholic bishop being asked about you know can you be a mason and a catholic at the same time you know or in some fundamentalist areas, you know, mm-hmm. fundamentalist churches are anti-masonic. Some of them are anti-masonic. There's even, you know, the Primitive Methodist Church is anti-masonic. That's one of its five founding principles. Uh, ah. They don't support fraternity. They don't support fraternalism, as I think as it was explained to me, and that specifically went back to the anti-masonic movement of the mid 19th century. Um. So. Again, a lot of these ideas that are presented need to be understood contextually.
2: Well, your book is certainly a you know a book anybody considering masonry, um, you know, it, it would benefit them to read through because it does it does explain you know the philosophy and it does explain the purpose and and um, you know you you do well, touch on to it. Go ahead.
3: One of the best parts of the one of the best parts of the book is that it illustrates the importance of art and architecture and what we expose ourselves to. Uh-huh. And I think in a hypermedia society, highly visualized hypermedia society with streaming on demand, you know, the things we expose ourselves to shape us, whether we recognize it or not. And the Masonic ritual expresses that very clearly, even if you don't recognize it, you feel different after it. Mm -hmm. I've known men who never stepped in a lodge again after their third degree. It happens. But everyone remembers one of two points in a degree. I won't say what they are because it would ruin it. That's another reason why it's important not to read the ritual. Reading the ritual is not the same as experiencing it. And there are certain aspects when you experience it, they stay with you across your life, maybe even beyond. So that's the – and then, of course, masonry illustrates something important to us, that we as human beings shape our institutions, as my friend likes to say, and they in turn shape us.
0: Uh-huh.
3: Therefore, it's very important that when we're forming our institutions and, of course, who is a part of them, we have to understand this in turn is a feedback loop. We shape our institutions, our institutions shape us. Let us make sure that we are building the kinds of institutions that shape us and build us in a manner that we want to become so that we can be a useful, uh, productive members of society and as we like to say in the Masonic uh, notion, you know, uh, helping build that temple not made with hands,
0: uh-huh. uh, that,
3: temple of, that temple of wisdom that makes our lives meaningful and useful, our labors useful, and the world a uh, more beautiful place. I hesitate to say better. I think yeah. more beautiful because if, if we make something beautiful, we inherently make it better. And that's where again art and architecture come in, the role of symmetry and harmony. They unconsciously oh, instruct yeah. us. Symmetry and well, harmony yeah, and, are how we judge beauty.
2: And and when you, you look at the cathedrals and and the temples that have been built over time and, and you can even go back into the Greek and Roman times too, but but the they they have a power and a and, and a, they have a power to them. Um that that you don't necessarily see today in, in the structures that are going up all over the place. Um, there is there's a, a magic in the cathedrals, in the stained glass windows and in the intricacy that has gone into the building of them that that you don't see today. And uh, While well, well, there are structures that are built that are, that are pretty, they don't have the presence uh, that, that the old cathedrals have. And, and, and there's something that has been lost, and I'm not sure how it got lost. I, I, I'll blame technology. Uh, but well, there's, it's there's, not
3: technology. What, what it got lost through utilitarianism. You know when you when you no longer see beauty when beauty becomes utilitarian, then it's not essential, and yeah. all one has to do is one had, well you don't have to go back that far you just have to go back to you know we had a hotel here not far from well you know where I went to school, which is really not far from here in many ways um, and it was a staggering piece of architecture built around. Uh, Roughly 1875, and it lasted until 1925. Uh Now, 50 years, it was beautiful. It's just incredible. Uh, There is a building that I used to see all the time, all of the time because it was near post office, that I used to have a P.O. box in. And only until recently did I realize that this was once, now, quite frankly, I tell you, as you know, as a child, I knew this as kind of uh, not one of the one of places you wanted to be living in. Uh-huh. Okay, that's, that's kind of to be polite. Fortunately, okay. now it's it's been renovated. They have a French restaurant on the first floor, but when it was built, it was a premier, premier living space. I'm not sure if it was a hotel or apartments. I can only imagine what the woodwork must be like, or hopefully it was probably damaged or gone, you know. But that didn't last very long. I mean, it went from being a premier structure, high-end, best place to live. This is top of the line in less than 50 years. The other building didn't even last. It lasted 50 years and it was torn down. This one at least survived. You look at the structures from the 30s, 20s and 30s that were being built. They're fabulous. Uh-huh. Fabulous stonework. But that's the point. That was part of the the, uh, necessity of the work. When we move into the post-war period, we move into, for a variety of reasons, uh, functionalism, a high high degree of functionalism, practicality. Practicality is a very difficult word because Americans love to be practical. But in doing so, we can also become uh, disconnected from many aspects of life that are important. And practicality kills beauty. That needs to be understood. Beauty requires a certain amount of extra. It doesn't mean that something can't be beautiful and uh, streamlined. We, We see that often. However, it's not the only way. When you see things that are beautiful, you often see that there's a richness or a fullness to them. There's an elaboration, okay It's the scroll work, it's the extra stonework. it's the uh, the way things are done, why they don't serve a functional purpose. They serve a purpose of statement about beauty and longevity and meaning. We are here to stay. I was looking at a bank building several maybe about a month ago, and on it had uh, different Greek deities. That was the statement. The gods of commerce, the gods of mining, the gods—these were there, and that's where well, you—that that is a right there an esoteric function, right there in the world, an occult act right in the world, and we've so lost that, and it, we've gone to functionalism.
2: Well, when you take it, though, you can also create. Gardens. There are there are gardens that are ancient, that that are still maintained, that are structurally the same as buildings, but they're you know you're you're doing it with living foliage and stuff like that. So that I, I'm 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 seeing your analogy, and and then I'm and I'm saying okay. So how do we take it into our lives and build the beauty in our lives where Bunches of us aren't architects, but yet there are ways of creating beauty within our lives that, that hopefully will last beyond, beyond our lifetimes. And I think well, a lot two of people... Ways. Yeah?
3: There's two ways. First and foremost, your own dwelling space. Make your own space beautiful. Uh-huh. You know, keep it clean, or, clean and orderly as best you can, neat as best you can, and make it beautiful. And uh, that's going to be up to you how you do it. You can uh, read some books on uh, uh, Feng Shui, the art of placement, and in Chinese, Chinese uh, practices. You can um, read the books on the Indian art of placement, which is culturally and <clears throat> uh, philosophically closer to the Greek and therefore the European practices. You can read that. Uh-huh. Um, and you can get involved in your community to revive architectural beauty and hold to architectural codes and standards. Because if we're just going to create a bunch of disposable boxes, that's not going to last. That's all you're going to have. Yeah, no. What you have is you have a disposable society, which means you have a disposable culture. This is really important. If you want to build something for your grandchildren, You need to build something that's going to last, and building is partly structural in terms of stone, but it's also in terms of the character traits, the values that support that, the values of short-term sacrifice, if you will. We'll sacrifice the short-term for the long-term.
0: Uh-huh.
3: Whereas what we see now is sacrificing the long-term for the short-term. But that goes back to what I said earlier about an entertainment culture. We have a culture, if everything is going to be on demand, then you're not going to have a period of sacrifice. You're not going to have the character strength to to make something lasting beyond the the immediate moment, which, by the way, is spiritual death. If If you want to take it to its ultimate conclusion... Uh, is is ultimately spiritual death. Yeah. In a very real sense. I know. Uh,
2: I, uh, quite a while ago, I I I was bemoaning the fact that that um, today's society, if today, with today's society, if we had a thousand years in which nothing happened, you wouldn't re- there would be nothing left, and yet. You have the Great Pyramids. You have temples that, that have, you know, sustained themselves through time. They are a testament to the culture that created them. And we don't have – if, if you wiped everything out, the only thing I can think of on this planet that would remain would maybe be um, Mount Rushmore. Maybe. Um, other than that, none of the structures that you see today well, would
3: last. Were well, well, you – you have a lot of them that would. I mean, things like the Empire State Building aren't going away. I mean, that that's poured concrete and metal. That's that's going to be here. Um, but your your point is is correct. If you outside of things like the Hoover Dam, which would stop functioning in about, I think it's like a week or so, maybe two weeks. Uh-huh. You know, the, the subway systems without their pumps would fill up in about 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. Um, so when you look at those things, yeah, there, there would be aspects of them, but they wouldn't be functional. You would have the, the great structures, the great structures being, the, of course, something like the Empire State Building, poured concrete, uh... But you would not have – and and steel and all that goes with it in buildings like that, mm-hmm. but most of the most of the homes would cease to exist in a hundred years or less you know they'd just be overgrown and fall apart and and that's it i mean they're yeah there there there'd does. be remains of them. The plastic uh, and things and and synthetics would remain to decompose. But in a thousand years, most of that would be gone. So, um, you know, when we look at why are you here, you know, each of your listeners, it's incumbent upon them to say, what is the life I am building for myself? And why am I building that life for myself? And when you look at the great families, whether you like them or not, people love to ramble on about the elites. Well, the reality is the elites have a plan. If you want to talk about elites with the elite or whatever it is, the reason they are that is because they have a plan and it's a multi-generational plan. You know, most people don't have a plan for their life. They don't have a plan for their afterlife. You know, they talk about reincarnation, getting off track here, but they don't really think about what that means. Yeah. So, you know, how do you plan for that? They don't plan for their lives. They don't plan for their retirement. So, you know, you really don't have much right getting upset about people who who do. Oh, well, they don't have my best interest at heart. Well, look, you don't have your best interest at heart. (laughs) Why should they? Really, this is serious. I I mean, we laugh at it, but it's an important point. If you're not going to take care of yourself, who made it their responsibility to take care of you? It says right there on the side of the cigarette pack, this will kill you. And yet, people do it. So, you know, when we we come full circle on this notion of, of spirituality, it's ultimately what is my personal responsibility and how am I acting on that? And and how am I doing it with my family and my community? And and Freemasonry um, places a tremendous amount of emphasis on that. Now now are all Masons uh, on this deep initiatic path? No, not even close. Are there quite a few of them? Most of the ones I deal with, yes. So it's a, and, Regardless of that spectrum in between, and there's a big spectrum in between, uh, it is a tremendous organization and, and, generally speaking, a wonderful group of men. And um, I fully support women joining uh, those organizations which will have them. Uh, I do not advocate changing the, the rules on regular masonry for a variety of reasons, but, and cause, uh, but I, I strongly support uh, you know any of the other rights uh co- masonic rights that that uh, that exist go ahead join it they're often quite well done, well run by the way well run well organized very efficient well, it
2: it it sort of is uh, you know and you do you you get to a point in life where i what is my legacy what am i leaving what am i giving to the culture that has supported me to this point in time. I, 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 I think in your 20s you don't necessarily think about that, but trust me, after about 50 and 60 and 70, you do start saying to yourself, what is my legacy going to be? What am I leaving that helps others to grow and to expand their, you know, within themselves? What, you know there, there has to be, to my mind, for me, at least you know, <clears throat> you know what is what is it that that I am going to leave that that not necessarily says, "Oh, that was Barbara delong, but that helps other people to better themselves you know there there has to be a gift, uh, almost like a you know I, I I leave this gift because I appreciate what life gave to me, and so I want to pass it on if I can, so you know there is that that element of you know, I, I'm not going to build a cathedral, possible. Well, at least not not today. But but you know, it, it's sort of like you do want to you do want to say I I I contributed something. So you know, you're right. It, it, it's family. It's 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 concepts of of right and wrong. It's 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 how do we serve? How do we help? You know uh, you know it's it's the grandchildren and if you don't have grandchildren then you know you can give to organizations you can make a difference with other people because the more people you touch the greater the gift you give back to humanity and i'll get off my phone well many
3: people many people say they they can't give to uh they can't build a temple that's true but they can help build one i mean my great uncle Uh in the depths of the depression uh as a as a A railroad conductor donated money to the building of uh, several temples for orders he was a member of, principally Amwork. They had a tremendous building period in the depths of the Depression because members gave a little and some gave a lot, but everybody gave something. And, you know, many hands lighten the load. And that's why we refer to that as the greatest generation, because many hands lighten the load, and they, they, they understood whether we agree with it completely or not, duty and obligation and sacrifice. So people can step up and make a difference if they choose to. And Masonry gives them a vehicle to do that, as do many other organizations. And that Masonic legacy of many hands lightening the load, as I said earlier, can be seen in a tremendous amount of charitable activity by the Masonic hospitals that are in existence.
2: Oh, absolutely. That is
3: a tremendous impact. Now, is it the only one? No, there are many others as well. But that is one that stands out strongly and clearly, and I cannot state it often enough. So if people want to make a difference, they have to want to. They can, yeah. but they have to really want to. And, you know, when you're in your 20s, if you're not thinking about your legacy, which most don't, you're not thinking. Well, that's true. Well, and, and and that's where most don't, because most aren't thinking. And we have to really understand that, again, why do people get to be an elite of anything, the best in their field? Because they want to. And they sacrifice the short term for the long term. You know, you don't get to have spiritual elites, and there are spiritual elites. Not everybody's equal, trust me. <laughs> yeah? You, know? you, you you don't okay. you don't get to be there without tremendous amount of sacrifice. I mean in a, a good example of that and we'll get a little bit off topic would be, you know, in, uh the much told story and I've had I've had mamas tell me this story directly, so it's not just from writing, is the uh, Tumo practices of certain nuns, where they would, you know, they would practice, 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 and they had kind of an Olympics, where to show how good they were at generating the inner fire, you know, they would put wet sheets on themselves in the winter time, and dry the sheets with their inner heat. And huh. that doesn't just happen; that happens with tremendous practice. I think there may be some videos of that reoccurring or being recreated not 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 imitated not by drama but actually being done attempted on youtube uh, but not with the nuns i haven't come across those but these are told me so you don't get that way you don't get to be an alchemist with a philosopher's stone it's called the great work not the big easy You, you 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 get to the great work by tremendous focus personal effort the same that's required to be You know, a professional musician, a professional athlete, a professional scientist, a professional surgeon. And when the surgeon that operated on my uh, youngest son was spectacular. He didn't get to be that by not giving a lot up, trading, if you will. I will focus on Uh this to be the best surgeon I can. Same thing with any skill engineering, plumbing, contracting. I know a fellow who, man, what he can do with a piece of wood is just off the charts. A master gardener, master farmer, all of that requires tremendous effort. And masonry reflects that. And it reflects the old relationship that was required for that to happen, the guild relationship of entered apprentice which is often joked about is the degree where you just, you come in and you shut up and learn Uh, because you've, you've got nothing to offer. And and, yeah, I I, I routinely get, I routinely get emails from people who want to talk with me. I don't want to talk with you. You've got nothing to offer. Well, why should I want to, I don't care about your opinions on anything. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: I mean, the only reason they're contacting me is because they recognize me as someone who has an opinion that's worthy of listening to. So, they want to then kind of, I don't know, use that in some manner to chit-chat, wow. if you understand what I'm saying. You, you, you know do. what I'm saying. It's, it, and it's, it's, it's a waste of my time to even consider talking to them. They don't understand that. And some may hear this as rude or insulting, but I only have so much time on this planet, I have to use it well. I mean, that's why I go on radio shows like this, so I can reach as many people as I can in as short order as I can. And I want that to be heard. You as well only have so much time on this planet. Use it wisely. Measure uh-huh. twice, cut once. <laughs> That's what we use it. That's I'm the, familiar with. You know,
0: with.
3: <laughs> you know when, when we do a Masonic initiation, you're, you're, you're told about the, uh, the, the unit of measurement, the 24-inch gauge, 24 hours in a day. Use them well. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, and a member of our board at the institute for medic studies he's of course he's a freemason and he there's a uh uh, fundamentalist preacher that he loves to listen to every now and then because i love this guy (laughs) because he's just so full of the juice you know he's just you know he's he's very uh charismatic he's a charismatic uh uh the southern black charismatic kind of revival movement and he's just full of life and he's saying look I've got the same amount of time as you do as anybody else. we all got 24 hours in the day. What are you doing with your time? Now, <laughs> now I don't care whether you're a charismatic preacher, a Freemason, a Tibetan Lama, or anyone else. That's the fundamental rule that you get told. Success in life is about time management. If you don't manage your time well, you're never going to be successful. That's the first that's rule. True. And that's one of the first things you brought up in, in, in the Entered Apprentice degree uh you know then as a as a fellow craft where we get into the liberal arts and sciences there you have to learn how to educate yourself and that fundamentally means training your mind how do you train your mind if you're going to spend time as I, I i'll tell I've told my sons many times look you can do whatever you want with your time you're at that point where you've got to make decisions but if you're going to spend 4 hours playing a video game that's fine just make sure that you understand that was not 4 hours working on something else or learning something new that makes you more valuable in your employment, or four hours contemplating the nature of your being so you can better understand yourself.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It's not about right or wrong or good or bad. It's about the trade-off. What are you doing? You know, it's karma, cause and result. If this, then that. Oh, yeah. And you know, then we move into the notion of the Master Mason, which is where we talk about the Sanctum Sanctorum, uh, the Holy of Holies, the hidden the light, where you often see illustrations of a, a, a light coming out from behind a curtain that's barely open, and then the, the name of God, the Tetragrammaton written on it, yod And, you know, then we talk about the inner nature, the inner revelation of ourselves. How do we make ourselves, because people say, I want to do stuff, but you have to be practical. You have to be of value. What do you offer? What do you bring to the table of life? We see many in this generation, uh, in the last two generations, but it's really strongest in the last ten years, five to ten years. And, you know, folks who are in the hiring process, folks in education who I deal a great deal with, uh, have seen it move just beyond the uh, liberal arts now increasingly into some of the sciences and and, and, and the important technology areas. We have uh, many people who, in their 20s, they, they just expect to get big money for doing not much. And, I know. <laughs> you know, you have to decide where money fits into your life plan. Okay, you have to figure all this out. This is not, I'm not saying, you know, right or wrong here, or that you should aspire to be wealthy unless you truly want to be. My point is that unrealistic expectations in terms of value, what do you bring, what are you worth, have been really expanded upon and enhanced. And that creates a false sense of self. And that creates a false sense of the relationship. And then with that, uh, a lack of understanding of what is really needed and what you need to do to make yourself valuable to others. And you don't get an award for showing up in life. It doesn't work that way. It never has and never will. And it doesn't mean I don't value as a human being. But I can't value more than you value yourself. I mean, I worked with drug addicts and alcoholics for the longest time. And, you know, some I could help, some I couldn't. But because I can only value you to the degree you value yourself. I can only work with what you bring to the table.
2: Exactly. And why am I, I going to spend I, my it, I say a lot of times people stop talking and start doing. You know, it, it's kind of like don't tell me what you're going to do, just start doing it. Yeah. Right. That's,
3: that's a very important point because people waste their energy talking. They literally waste their energy talking. They waste it. They, 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 they exhaust themselves and then they don't have any juice for the final work. Yeah. Uh, and this is, this is all very part of that part of being silent. Be silent and learn, you know, listen. You, I tell my kids, you can't learn if you're talking. You can only <laughs> learn when you listening. It's
2: true. It's true. Yeah. No. it's, it's, and i you know in in my 70s it's it's a more exciting time than it was in my 20s because um a lot of the things that i have learned and put into play are are now showing me you know this was a good idea keep going you know and and it's uh what this stop talking start doing comes, comes up often at least for me within my life and and it's kind of like don't, don't tell everybody what you plan on doing do it you know <laughs> Well, well, this is where
3: we, know
0: pe-
3: where we know people by their actions. And, again, that's a Masonic structure because we're being, what are you building? That is, what are you doing? What's the plan? Uh-huh. We called it the trestle board. What's the plan? The plan for your life, the plan for your actions, the plan for the lodge, if you're organizationally dealing with something. And then how do you execute that plan? And this yeah. is all very practical, you would argue. Yes, yeah, it's practical. Well, what do you say about – I said, well, yes, pra- we have to be practical in things. But we don't trade beauty all the time for practicality. We work beauty into the practicality. How are we going to build that onto the plan? You know, and beauty is often exactly. the icing on the cake. Now, I mean, that's really the way to look at it. Beauty is the icing on the cake. You know, I, I have a yeah, bakery here you have that to bake is the quick. Cake. That's right. First you have to bake the cake. And I have a bakery here that is spectacular. They are just <laughs> wonderful. And I mean, it's like four or $5 cupcakes because they're just so <laughs> everything is a work of art. And and this goes into when we talk about quality, masonry has to help you understand quality of things. When we talk about beauty quality too, I was with a friend of mine and we were saying, Oh, you know, it's, more than I'd like to spend on a dessert. But how much more? A dollar more? Two dollars more? That's not much. How often do I get it? Well, not that much, so it's not that big of a deal. And if I were to try and learn it, how long would it take me to learn, if it were even possible, for it to me to be the master, and I guess that would be pastry chef, uh-huh. that's the person is who makes this. It would take me years if, if it even came to fruition. So pay the $2 extra and enjoy it is the lesson here. Go focus on quality. Focus on quality, not quantity. What is well, the quality? Well, I
2: think also appreciating... What others have created and, and you know, not being jealous, but just appreciating the fact that, that someone has mastered something and has put something out there that is that phenomenal and to be able to share in it. I mean, your appreciation, um, I'm sure, helps to let them know it's high from the fact that you paid the money, but your appreciation, you know, is probably even worth more than the money.
3: Well, it's the money that keeps the lights on, but I'm it's the the appreciation that keeps the spirit moving to keep the lights on. Oh so yeah. So they do go they go hand they go hand in hand in that wonderful way. Um as I say to people, telling me thank you is fine, but you know, it's the check that keeps the operation moving. So, you know, <laughs> write the check. You know, these 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 free interviews aren't free, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs>
2: this is true. Um, I, you know, I would be remiss if I, if I didn't, you know, he, before we're before we get too close to being done, I, I want to do bring in a, the connection, if any, or the the similarity between the Freemasons and the Templars, because that's something that a lot of people look at and often wonder about: are they a growth out of each other, or are they different entities altogether? Or what?
3: Well, you have a problem there because the Templars existed before Freemasonry. Yeah. However, the Templars were suppressed. And in that suppression, the order fractured. Some aspects of it were absorbed into, I think it was the Knights of Christ in Portugal. I'd have to check yeah. what, what I wrote about that. Um And, of course, orders of the same names often come and go across centuries. Remember, we're talking centuries here. So Uh aspects of the Templars, it appears, ended up in Scotland or elsewhere. And not all of them, just aspects of it. And that probably played a role in some Masonic bodies. But that, you know, we're talking... Because I have to check, we're talking centuries between the suppression and, and what we'd see later on. So,
2: is, isn't there though? Saying, is it in the is it in the Scottish right that there is a level of of Templar?
3: Um, you have Templar? To, it's in Scottish and York Scottish right and York right both have Templar aspects. Okay, and they have Templar degrees. Okay. So somewhere along the line, someone decided that the Knights Templar were going to be the model or the exemplar of the stalwartness in face of persecution, religious persecution, which, you know, gets so tricky because for the most part at that time, when these degrees are being formulated, uh, which is, we'll say, this would be the late 19th century for this one uh, or for these when they're being popularized, heavily popularized, you know, most of the members are Protestant, the Templars were would have been Roman Catholic, and you know it's you know it gets you know this is where we get into mythology and symbolism versus history, where it gets very messy. Um, so the Templar notion of holding on to the, also the Templar secret, the Templar treasure, becomes a, a, a story uh, within some of the degrees. You know what is that uh-huh. that the Templars were seeking what was the true treasure of Solomon, what did they find when they were searching? Um, many, many things grow around it. Many ideas have come up around it. Uh, so the Knights Templar or masonry has Knights Templar degrees, and it even has like the Knights Templar i Fund, okay for York right? <laughs> yeah you know, the i fund that's their charity. Uh, and then you have okay. Knights Templar organizations that have nothing to with Freemasonry. They're standalone entities and have nothing to do with it. Okay? They may share uh-huh. membership, they may not, they may or may not. Um, and they're it's so that's it. So that's the relationship.
2: Well, I I think it's important that people understand that because the 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 run of the mill assumption is that that the Templars, you know, evolved over time and became Freemasons. And you know, when you when you get into the the nitty gritty and you look at establishments and you know when things were formed, that there's no connection at all. And yet they I, they were persecuted religiously, and so there is, you know, that aspect to it that that is respected greatly. Uh, you know what they went through, well, and
3: well, and they were persecuted financially. Yeah. Really, the, the the religious aspect was a cover. The charges of heresy were a cover, and and the pope and that document was only found maybe twenty years ago. You know, it said that there was no char- there was no evidence of heresy on the part of the part of the Templars. It was the king of France who was really the big force behind this, and it was to acquire Templar wealth. And, and again, well, he owed uh, him a lot of money is, too. Well, what we have to look at here when people are looking at this connection, what is the connection between Templars and Masonry? And I think you hit the nail on the head there, inadvertently, is that they're looking for a step-by-step linear connection, that the Templars became Freemasons, or the Templars founded Freemasonry is what people want to hear often in a very simple manner. It's a very cartoon, comic book way of looking at things. It fits nicely on a meme. That's not what happened. Uh, Templar, members of the temple, Templar groups escaped and probably had some influence in some aspects of Scottish Freemasonry or English Freemasonry as they were fleeing France. That probably happened. Groups in those countries already probably had some influence later on. But so did a lot of other groups. You know, these were streams leading into the, the river of Freemasonry.
2: I think that's what really impressed me so much was that 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 there were so many different organizations throughout time that that were the precursors or created a a level or an aspect that that enhanced what what became Freemasonry. So that that that's the part that really um, I don't know why, but my concept was well. A group of people got together and formed this, but but no, it was it was. There there have always been these kinds of organizations, and this became a solid group, but as you said, under a great big tent, and a lot of pieces came into that tent, and were were assimilated to create what what there is today.
3: Right, and and, and we can even look at, in many ways it was always individuals because individuals had to be part of what was happening. Just as the individual now Freemasonry or any organization now exists because of the members. It only Uh reflects the quality of its members reflected and it reflects back on them. It's a feedback loop. So when anyone was saying, you know, Oh, my church, this or my group, that or this or that, all that may very well be true. However, You as an individual now have to ask the question, what am I willing to do to change that? What do I need to do to change it? And what am I willing to do? Because there may be things that need to be done, but I'm simply not willing to do them. And you have to be honest with yourself about that. And then you have to be honest. That goes back to the sacrifice. What are my values? What are my efforts? What am I willing to do? And, you know, that's part of the labor. What is this labor? What What is this temple we're building of our lives? What is this stone, this cubic stone we're making of ourselves? Where do we make ourselves valuable so that we can fit into, I I don't like to say a bigger plan, but we'll say a a larger edifice, a larger structure that is beautiful and functional for the generations that will come. Because if you believe in reincarnation, as I'm sure many of your listeners do, you know, you didn't. You don't get off scot-free. You don't get to ignore repairs on the building and then come back to a new one. You don't get to burn the building down and then get a new one. You need to get that in your head. What are you building for your grandchildren? Because that's what you're building for yourself. Uh huh. So if you're not building anything for your grandchildren – Don't be surprised when you're not too happy with what you get next time around.
2: (laughs) This is true. This is very true.
3: It's very true, uh, and it needs to be really understood. Because too many people talk about reincarnation as if it's a free trip. You know, oh, well, no, it won't be better next time just because you want it to be. It doesn't work that way. It's cause and effect. Masonry and is about that ele- building. What is the structure building?
2: And, and the element of karma goes lifetime to lifetime. It doesn't stop. You know, when you when you pass over, you know, if there is a ledger, it goes with you. So, um, in my opinion. So. so well, and, that,
3: and we we use, we use the term ledger, but really the ledger is our character. What is your character, yeah. and what is the habit you've built into your character? And masonry is big about that. What are? How do we smooth off the sides? What do we get off the rough edges of our character, you know, our personality? What is it that we are truly at? at, at so if I'm appreciative of what other people do, you know, that, that is beneficial to my character, if I'm really appreciative. If I'm supportive of what other people do, and not just in terms of words, but in terms of actions. Remember, it's thought, word, and deed. Yes. It's not just the thoughts and not just the words, but what are the actions? Thought, word, and deed. Indeed then I'm building, then I'm creating, then I'm helping. And that carries over. That moves forward with me. Because that is me. That's who I am.
2: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. No, I totally agree with you on that. I think that, unfortunately, this kind of teaching doesn't take place in school, and that's too bad. I mean, it's... But, But you have to be ready... To be able to participate in order to to you know blend in and utilize this information, and you know it's it's one thing to have the knowledge, it's another thing to have the wisdom. and you know and and to me, wisdom is knowledge put into action and manifest so that so that so that it's a matter of you know you you go a certain length of time gathering all of this knowledge but it does you no good if you're not practicing it and living it. And that's what Freemasonry, you know, gives you the opportunity to do, to take that, you know, the tools and and create something of your life with those tools.
3: Yes, that is correct. And, again, the book is open to everyone, so it's, these ideas are, are, we put, I, I present them within the Masonic context but they are not limited mm-hmm. to that, and
2: no,
0: it, because we're it, all a
3: yeah.
2: No, it's a handbook for everyone, and that's what I think is so fabulous about it. It's it's a spiritual guide, and and you know I, my my background is spiritual, and that's that's what I preach, and that's what I try to practice, and and you know everything that you you said in the book, as far as the the rituals and the philosophies um apply so spiritually to to everyone and it's a matter of you know uh you, you don't well ha- having the benefit of a lodge and and brothers the the war sisters that you can share the information with and stretch it and uh, and get a, a a deeper understanding of the meaning there and that's what the dialogue between people is it's 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 thoughts building on thoughts, and, and you can find greater depth in things when you're, when you're tossing around these philosophies. Um, but, but it's not needed. It's a good thing to have it, but if you don't have it, the book still benefits you greatly.
3: Well, one of the things I'd like to just put out there before we, we close um, is that um, – the world of the fraternal movements, the golden age of the fraternal movements. And there's a wonderful book called, uh, ritual America. I'm, I'm quoted in it. And it's just a wonderful picture book as well with great text, uh, on fraternal organizations in the United States. And so it deals a lot, a great deal with the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, that was a time of limited movement. People really stayed very close to home because technology did not allow them to travel as well. But we see the explosion of technology during that period. And that explosion looked forward to its own version of the Golden Age. And, of course, trains opened up and people could travel by train. And you know, later on, we'd see the beginning of aircraft and limited air travel. Uh, by the by the 20s and 30s and these fraternal movements were local for better or worse they're local but they allowed a regional national even international connections and relationships when one traveled what it meant though is you also had to know your community you were part of the community you had to rely on the community and people had to be able to rely on you to various degrees Hence the old joke, uh, no one needed to lock their doors. Well, they still had crime back then. And yeah. crime. Terrible crime. Terrible crime in some areas of New York, you know, gangs of New York and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. organized criminal activity. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't perfect. But at the same time, you had this, people weren't locking their doors. People knew they could rely on. For what and for when. And fraternities are part of that. When you look at the current state of affairs, particularly over the last year and a half to two years, you're going to see more of a necessity of that. You're going to need to know who your neighbors are and who you can rely on and who you can trust and why and what for. I mean, there are some people I would never trust with my houseplants. It's just not going to happen. They don't know how to water them. Other people, for all their good intentions... Uh, really, I'll, I'll pass on eating the, the peach cobbler. You know, uh, they're just not very good. But others are spectacular in some things. So we have to become more local. If anything, the supply chain crisis has illustrated to us is the fragility of high-tech modern society. And we need to pay close attention to that, not just nod our head at it, and organize local resiliency. And local uh-huh. lodges reflected that they reflected a kind of local resiliency. And uh, we need to examine that again in all movements and organizations, not just Freemasonry, but all movements and organizations need to take time to really step back. First, people and families need to find out what is their resilience and then how can they move that into their communities? Because we're going to need that in the years coming ahead. Notice I said years, not yeah. days, weeks or months, but years. So, it's very important that your listeners pay attention to that. But I guess that's I all I've that, really got to say on this topic. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I I totally agree with you and I think that the isolation that we have experienced over the last year or so has given us opportunities to 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 start to look at at, at our our Society and our, our neighborhoods and our neighbors far far more so than we we might have in the past and and I have found that the people are becoming more a part of their neighborhood and, and and their and their their small groups than ever before because of the isolation and in a way it's reminding us to go back to an earlier time when when there was greater strength in in those kind of associations, and I think it's a benefit to it it 's a shame it happened the way it did, but it is a benefit to it so that so that we have learned from this situation that we've been going through that there is a richness and a value to to being neighborly to working with those people around us, with sharing with those people around us, and that's something that that you know the tech, uh, tech part of our, our culture has taken away from us. very important that we are right. getting more and more. I'm it sorry? Allows
3: for tremendous, it, well, it allows for tremendous communication. I mean, someone who's very isolated geographically, uh, it allows yeah. for communication, and that's wonderful. It allows for us to have this conversation uh, right now, today. Uh, it has many strengths. Uh, and but it is not a substitute in the long run for face to no. face human communication, and this is what we mean and uh by looking at the human experience in that building, what am I building, and how am I building it, and who am I building it with and uh that 's what we really need to to focus on in terms of our lives.
2: yeah, we are trying to you know build build better communities and I think that that is something that is happening um, today and, and I, I you know it's it's, um, it's encouraging to see it happening and so I am you know personally being grateful for what we're going through because I am finding that there is a greater sense of of community that that I'm experiencing because of it and I think that's that's something that everyone you know should pay attention to. But I do I do notice that we are at the end of our time here, and and I do want to thank you so much for sharing so much of your material with us. You know, this has been a a really enlightening show, and I I am so hopeful that that people are able to to get something out of it. Cause I certainly have, but you know. <laughs> my reason for doing the show is I learned from it. So um, this is my school. But I so appreciate your sharing your time with us because this has been incredible. Um
0: well, thank
3: you, you want to
2: oh, oh, sure. give out folks websites and stuff?
3: Yes, folks are interested can easily contact me. Just Google Mark Stavish. You'll get a lot of uh, sites and, and hits of articles and publications. But the best thing to do is go to uh, the Hermetic Institute or the uh, .com, well, the Institute for Hermetic Studies, Institute for Hermetic Studies, and it's at hermeticinstitute.com or .org, and both of them will get you there. And we also have the Institute for Hermetic Studies at Teachable, and we encourage you to go to uh, Teachable to see as many classes offerings uh, that are there. They're very extensive, and we're constantly upgrading and updating the curriculum. Uh, that is for existing courses. We add new material for, for students and adding new courses uh, over time. So at Teachable, go to the Institute for Hermetic Studies. And, of course, Vox Hermes is our blog. You can find that uh, online, Vox Hermes. And uh, there will be contact information at all of these places where you can contact us and we'll uh, tell you how, how to sign up for everything and what to do if you're interested.
2: Fantastic. Fantastic. And, and, again, you know, the book is, is just, it's the path of Freemasonry, the craft as a spiritual practice, and it's a fabulous book. I totally recommend it, and, and this is going to be another one of those gifts that I give people because it does, it does help those who are wanting to go into Freemasonry and those who are on a spiritual pathway just outside of that. So it's a a great book to read, and I'm so grateful that you did the show so I had the opportunity to read the book.
3: Well, Thank you very much. It was great to be here.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Totally. Thanks again. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. This will be up on YouTube. Please, if you um, visit us there and you enjoy what you see and experience, uh, please subscribe to it. That's how we know you're listening. Bye-bye, everybody.